This is historic narrative in scripture. Uh, it's, it's a running account of God's people in the Old Testament. But as we consider this passage, let's look at it not just as a history lesson, but let's look at this passage as God would have us to see it. God revealing himself as a covenant God, as a covenant-keeping God. And let's look at this passage and consider all the things that God uh, puts up with, if you will, in the fulfillment of his covenants. And praise God, his covenant-keeping power is not reliant on our ability to keep his covenants. It's God's faithfulness, uh, not man's, that that, uh, keeps the covenant with us, his faithfulness. So let's consider this chapter. Chapter 37. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Remember last week we came to a close of one generation, and now we, we begin another. This narrative, though, is not about Jacob necessarily, but the the generations of Jacob will be mostly Joseph narrative. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream. And told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their flock near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? 
I am seeking my brothers, he said. Please tell me, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Then they saw him from afar, and before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. Father, would you help us to see in this word your faithfulness to your promises, despite our sins. Send forth this word in all your power, Father, to accomplish your great and glorious will in our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, just as Jacob was the center of attention in the Isaac generations, So now we find that Joseph has this honored position in the Jacob generations. The Joseph narrative starts with these words. These are the generations of Jacob. And then it gives us his age, him being 17 years old. It tells us of an account where he's out with his 
half-brothers from the, the concubines of Jacob, and he brings back a bad report, and thus set, sets the stage uh, for all that is to follow in this chapter, the rivalry between him and his half-brothers. Some see Joseph as a spoilt tattletale, but I think it's more proper to say that he was a faithful to his father. As we will see in this passage, Jacob sends him to bring back a, a report of his brothers. The rest of the book of Genesis, with the exception of chapter 38, will be primarily what God is doing in the life of Joseph and how the seeming frowning providence of God will eventually be seen as smiling providence. It is my hope and prayer that uh, we will learn more of God through his word, and that by learning, we will be made more into the likeness of Jesus Christ as we had prayed in our corporate time of prayer. I pray that we will be able to avoid the sins pointed out to us in this passage, favoritism, envy, hatred, and deception, and that we will see throughout the hand of God as he is working out all things for the good of those whom he has called for those who love him. And so we will look at the prob problems with favoritism. It says, now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. Now, I don't think we really realize the age of these people when they're having children because it's unheard of in our day. But it's estimated by Bible scholars, not that we're told Jacob's age when Joseph's born, but it's estimated by Bible scholars, and we can do some of the math to get an approximate, that Jacob was in his 90s when Joseph was born. What does that tell you? Remember what happened to him at Penuel. This 90-some-year-old man wrestled with God all night long, physically. And persevered. Now, I'm not anywhere near 90, and I don't think I could wrestle with anybody for an hour, <laughs> let alone all night. So we'll keep this. And it says this son of his old age. How do we get 90s? Well, we'll do some quick math here. We're told that Joseph is 17. He gets sold into slavery at 17. We're told later on in further chapters that he's 30 when he goes into the service of Pharaoh, right? So that's what, 13 years in captivity before he's finally exalted to be the prime minister of Egypt. So he's 30, right? Now we know that there's, because of Pharaoh's dreams, there's going to be seven years of bad, or seven years of good, and then seven years of famine. So he's at least 37 when the famine starts. Now, we don't know how long the famine had been going on when his brothers finally came to Egypt for food. Probably not that long. Maybe a year or two. So we could safely estimate that Joseph was around 38, between 38 and 40, uh, when his brothers came. Now, we know when he moved his father there, the Bible tells us that his father was 130 years old. So let's take... 40, for instance, if he was 40 years old when his father got there, that makes his father 90 when he was born. So we can get an approximate. So 
This is his son of his old age. It's not just speaking about the son of his favorite wife, but actually the son of his old age. And so I know there's not set in stone, but that's kind of approximate age. It, it would help us keep in mind this narrative um, when we uh, keep that in perspective. Isaac, I mean, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons and didn't try to hide it. Now, I don't know if I agree necessarily with the wording, but Kent uh, Hughes in his book, Disciplines of a Godly Man, uh, uh, says that favoritism is the, the, the most damning sin a parent can do against their child. I, I, I don't know if I agree with that totally, but I do know that every time we see it in Scripture, it, it doesn't have a good outcome. Parents, we are to love our children equally. I mean, and we have as our an example, our great and glorious God who shows no partiality, who shows no favoritism. When we are in Christ, there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. And so as parents, we ought to model that to our children. Now, loving all your children the same isn't translations directly to treating them all the same. Some child, some children need more attention than others. Some children uh, need more teaching than others. We, we can't treat them all the same. We have to uh, parent them according to them, uh, how they are made up, okay? What their abilities are, what their uh, capabilities of learning are, and things like that. But we don't love them more or less than our other children. Favoritism, it might not be the worst sin, but it is a devastating sin. We're talking about families in our Bible study hour. What a picture of a dysfunctional family we have here. And this is God's chosen family to become his people. So if we can avoid some of these dysfunctions in this family, then maybe our families can be stronger, happier, more godly. The Bible says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, Ephesians 6.4. Favoritism provokes what? As we see in this passage, anger, hatred, envy. So what are you doing by showing favoritism, but causing your children to sin, the ones who are less favored? It ought to be avoided at all costs, in your family relationships. Parents, if you have adult children and you were guilty of this, it's not the unpardonable sin. God can forgive you and he can redeem the time and bring reconciliation between you and your children. So I don't want you to hear me condemning you if this is a past sin in your life, but that too is forgiven at the cross. We see Israel here making a special garment for his favorite son. How's that for setting him apart? Now, it says the coat of many colors, and then we know that it looks like the old rainbow coat and things like that. Well, it's not necessarily a coat of many colors. That's how it's translated. What it is translated is it's a royal robe. It's different than all the other cloaks or robes 
that his other sons had in war. Now, they're shepherds, okay? They're not going to have all these royal robes, but yet he does. Jacob sets him apart from his brothers, and this probably was a gesture telling his brothers, at least that's what his brothers took from it, that he's going to receive the patriarchal blessing. He's going to receive the birthright, even though he's not the firstborn. And so that's causing this envy and this hatred uh, of his half-brothers. Remember, one of, the, one of Jacob's sons has already tried to usurp his authority, his actual firstborn, Reuben, by going into one of his concubines. This hatred of Joseph by his brothers grew and grew and finally came to a point where they could not even speak, it says here, peaceably or good to him. In other words, they didn't have anything good to say about him, and they didn't have anything good to say to him. Can you imagine living in a family with at least 10 of your brothers? We don't know if Benjamin, Benjamin was probably a young lad at this point. But, but at least his older brothers, they didn't even want him around. They couldn't stand to be in his presence. Have you ever been around somebody like that? You couldn't stand to even be in their presence, whether, whether they're an evil person or just you had something against them. Well, think of that feeling and, and then times 10. Now you have 10 older brothers that just can't stand you being around them. But it wasn't just Israel that, um, that set Joseph aside, that, that, that gave him a position of prominence now. We see that in the dreams that God gave to Joseph. That God is setting Joseph apart as a, as in a position of prominence. These are prophetic dreams. God chose Joseph to be the salvation of his family. And use these circumstances to orchestrate later events. Unlike Jacob's choice, God's choice was not sinful. Such as, as such, God gave Joseph two prophetic dreams. And we know the first dream, and Joseph tells his brothers, we were in the field. We were collecting up the wheat. And how did they collect up the wheat? They, or, or grain or whatever, and they tied it in bundles, sheaves is called. And he says, all of a sudden, his sheaf stood upright, and the rest of their sheaves bowed down to his sheaf. Now, make no mistake about it. His brothers knew exactly what he was saying. They knew exactly what they thought the meaning of the dream was, and they had it right. They were right. What? Do you think you're going to rule over us? We're all way older than you. You know, you're, you're one of the last ones in the line when it comes to precedence in this family. At least that's the way it should be, right? You had the firstborn. I mean, you have 10 older brothers. We saw that in, in, uh, elsewhere in Scripture, didn't we? When uh, Samuel is looking to anoint a king beside Saul. How many uh, sons... Did David's father have? 
Wasn't David the eighth son? And all the rest of the sons were paraded before Samuel. And he said, nope, not that one. Nope, not that one. Do you have another one? And they brought David. That was the one. Man looks on that outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So we see this throughout Scripture, that God doesn't necessarily follow man's rules, right? But chooses who will be his successor, who will succeed in the lineage of the Messiah. But there's one time in Scripture where the firstborn does have preeminence, which we read in our Scripture reading this morning, Christ, the firstborn of all creation. Not that he was born or created, but he has preeminence. And so Jacob chose and God chose Joseph. But Joseph didn't just have the one dream. Why is this significant? Well, we see later on the dreams of Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh, these dreams are one and the same, which means it's going to happen. It's a sure thing. You know, in the New Testament, every time we we hear Christ say, truly, truly, that gets our attention, right? Repetition. God sends two dreams to Joseph to ensure that Joseph takes notice that this is something that is going to take place. Of course, the second dream is the sun and the moon and 11 stars. Of course, that's very clear. Joseph's mother and father and his brothers. And even his dad gets in on the action now. He rebukes Joseph. Shall I and your mother and your brothers bow down to you? But Joseph, his initial reaction was rebuke. But what does it say? He kept this saying in his mind. Where do we hear that again? When Simeon is blessing the baby Jesus, and it says Mary ponders these thoughts in her heart, right? But the reaction of the brothers was the same. More hatred and more envy. Philip Eveson comments, things went from bad to worse when Joseph told them his dreams. He was somewhat naive and insensitive as he related these dreams to men who could not tolerate being in his presence. Talk about rubbing salt in the wounds, right? Even his father rebuked him for drawing attention to himself and making himself more important than his father and his mother, end quote. Another commentator states, those dreams did not exhaust themselves in the personal history of Joseph. They go beyond Joseph to Christ. And has not God given his son a position of absolute supremacy over this creation? End quote. And so Joseph's brothers not only hated him, but they envied him. And we know what hatred and envy together can lead to, and we will see that in this passage. The next portion uh, is now the portion that is where we have find Jacob or Joseph getting sold into slavery. 
Well, Joseph's older brothers are out tending the flocks. Jacob decides that he would like to know of their well-being. And so sends Joseph to find his brothers and bring back a report. Notice in the passage where it is that the brothers are supposed to be. Shechem. Now, just a few years earlier, something happened in Shechem, did it not? Remember their sister was defiled and the brothers took revenge and killed all the males, killed every man in that city. And then the brothers come in and plundered and took, you know, as slaves, all the women and children and, and all the livestock and everything. So apparently they didn't have any problem going back there because they knew there was no, probably not anybody there that was going to mess with them, right? And it was wonderful pasture land around Shechem. That's why Jacob had settled there to begin with. But this would raise concern with Jacob. You know, he knew the past trouble there. And so he wants to report. He wants to know, first of all, are his sons okay? But he also wants to know the, you know, the, is his flock doing okay too? They are shepherds. That is their livelihood. And so he sends Joseph. Knowing what we know already, just in the first part of this chapter, how Joseph's half-brothers hated him, it makes us question the wisdom of Jacob's decision to send him to his brothers. You would expect Joseph to say, "Um, Dad, do you really think this is a good idea? I mean, my brothers really hate me. Maybe Jacob didn't realize the full extent of the situation between Joseph and his brothers. You know, he had a habit of looking the other way, did he not? But the text says Joseph went. Loyal, obedient Joseph. Doesn't say he argued or questioned. But when he gets to Shechem, he can't find his brothers. But being the loyal, obedient Joseph, he's not going to return home and say, Dad, I couldn't find him. He's, he's wandering around looking for him. He's going to accomplish his mission. And a man of, of that area finds him and, and asks him who he's looking for. And, of course, we know the story. He's told that uh, I think they went to Dothan. I heard him say they were going there. So what does Joseph do? I mean, he's already traveled 50 miles to get to Shechem. Now he's got to travel another 13, 14 miles or so, to get to uh, Dothan. But he does. He obeys his dad. He's going there to get this report for his dad. Now, in the first part of the chapter, what do we see happening when Joseph gave a report? He didn't mince words. He didn't conceal what his brothers were doing. He told his dad the truth. If it was a bad report, that's the report he brought back. In many ways, he, he was more honest than even his dad. In verse 17, so Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. And that brings us now to the murderous plot. Verse 18, they saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. This is premeditated murder. They're they're, they're planning his murder while he's walking towards them. 
They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. I could hear the sarcasm and the hatred in their voices. They couldn't even call him Joseph or their brother. Here comes their little brother. No, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And then we'll just tell dad that some fierce animal must have killed him. Right? We, we, we can come up with something. We're, we're, we're you know, 60-some miles away from home. How's he going to find out? Now, I realize we must be real careful when using typology in the Old Testament. But I think we can draw a little bit of typology, maybe, from this passage. Joseph was sent by his father. Christ was sent by his father as he proclaims in his high priestly prayer in John 17, as you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. John 17, 18, Christ was sent by his father. Joseph's own brothers did not receive him. The Bible says of Christ, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. John 1, 11. Joseph's brothers hated him. The Bible says of Christ, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces and he was despised and we esteemed him not. Isaiah 53, 3. God would use the brothers' wicked schemes to save them and their families from a severe famine. The Bible says of Christ, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Acts 2, 22 and 23. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4, 12. And so we see a typology here uh, pointing to Christ. How this young man was, was by the wicked intentions of his brothers, was made their savior. And Christ, by the wicked intentions of mankind, but from the definite plan of God, has become our Savior. And not from a, a, a famine of food, but saving us from a spiritual famine, saving us from spiritual death. And so, upon seeing him off in the distance, Joseph brothers plotted to kill him. But here again, we will see God through sinful man providentially intervening on his behalf. So we have Reuben now. The last time we talked about Reuben, he was involved in a filthy affair. But now he at least steps up to the plate as the oldest to save his brother's life. For whatever reason, we're not told why he did it. We can make a bunch of guesses. What we are told is that he did. 
he become an advocate and convinced his brothers not to kill Joseph outright, but rather cast him into an empty pit. And they probably thought, okay, we'll just throw him in the pit and leave him there to die. Because remember, their plan is to kill him. Eveson questions Reuben's motives. Did he feel some responsibility as the firstborn? But why did he not have the courage to tell the brothers there and then to abandon their scheme and allow Joseph to return home unharmed? <clears throat> Was he trying to make amends for his disgraceful behavior with Bilhah by personally rescuing Joseph from the pit and returning him to his father? In the purposes of God, Reuben's plan was not allowed to succeed. He intervened on his brother's behalf. However, he was not entirely successful. That kind of shows his lack of leadership, if you will. Ever since this incident with Bilhah, he's, he's lost the leadership role in the family, and he will be denied it at, at Joseph's last words as well. <clears throat> But we all still see the hand of God in this, orchestrating the affairs of man. Providentially, for whatever reason, Reuben was not present. Now, it says the brothers sat down to eat, and they looked up, and here's this band of Ishmaelites, traders, you know, the, the, the merchants, if you will. For for some reason, Reuben's not there. And that is when Judah, who's the, the fourth oldest, right, comes up with a new plan. It's not good enough just to leave the boy in the pit. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let, our, let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. And here we start to see a little bit of Judah's leadership, which will be of great prominence later on in the Scriptures. They listen to him. They pull the boy out of the pit, and they sell him. Now, some people are confused. They say, wait, it, it says Ishmaelites and it says Midianites. And the Ishmaelites, we know they're the descendants of Ishmael. Well, who are the Midianites? They're descendants of Keturah through Abraham, right? Remember? Abraham's wife after Sarah died, and he had several sons. What's, what's uh, speculated here is that maybe the descendants of Ishmael intermarried with the descendants of Midian. And so this could be one of the same tribe. Ishmaelites or Midianites. Scripture uses both to describe them. There's really not a problem. I mean, it's, it's, it doesn't have to be rectified. What, what we do know is that this group of, of merchants purchased Joseph for 20 pieces of silver. Once again, there was another man that was purchased for an amount of silver, Right? The Lord Jesus, when Judas betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver, both, both prices, even though not the same, were the price of a slave. They were both purchased 
for the price of a slave. And finally, this chapter concludes with this, an awful, soul-crushing lie. It wasn't enough that these brothers did this to their own flesh and blood. But now they have to tell their father something, because it was their father that sent the boy to them. Then they took Joseph's robe, verse 31, and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. Ugly deception has come full circle. A robe and a kid goat were used in Jacob's deception of his father Isaac to steal Esau's birthright, to steal Esau's blessing. He had already stolen the birthright previous with a pot of beans, right? And so now his own sons use his tactics with a goat and a robe to deceive their father. They were not attempting to steal a blessing, or they could be, because they surmised that Jake, Joseph was going to receive the blessing and the inheritance. They were trying to eradicate a potential threat to their pride. Well, you're not going to bow down to you, which says that they may have believed, I mean, it, you know, we're not told that everybody had these dreams all the time. But they were trying to ensure that Joseph's dreams would never come true. Remember when they plotted to kill him? Let's kill him, and we'll see what happens to these dreams, right? How can they come true if he's dead? And so they're trying to eradicate this threat. In the frowning providence of God, Jacob would spend the next 13 years believing that his favorite son was dead. Now, as an aside, we are told that Joseph was 17 years old when he was sold into slavery. Interestingly, Joseph lived with his father and family for the first 17 years of his life. And Jacob would live with his son in Egypt for the last 17 years of his life. He's 130 when he gets there, and he's 147 when he dies. But in this intermittent 13 years, Jacob is in agony. It says he refused to be comforted. All his sons and daughters, daughters meaning probably their wives, all his household tries to comfort him, and he refused to be comforted. No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. 
Even though Jacob believes his son is dead, we see at the end of this chapter that Joseph is, in fact, very much alive in Egypt. And after we get past Judah's folly in the next chapter, we will again focus on the life of Joseph. In conclusion, Joseph was godlier than all his brothers. We will see that if we didn't see that in this passage today. We will see that in in the coming passages about Joseph. He was obedient and honest, character traits that surpassed not only his brothers, but his father as well. So it is not hard to understand why God chose Joseph to rule, not just over his family, but to rule over all Egypt. In this passage, we will see the sinfulness of mankind and its ugly, hurtful results. But we also see the sovereign hand of God faithfully carrying out his divine purposes. You know, a lot of times when we see bad things happening, we can only focus on those bad things. But we can go back to passages like this and say, you know what? I know that God is in control and that even these things that look horrible, he is doing for his people's good. We have many, many, many examples of this in Scripture, and God doesn't change. This covenant God that we serve does not change. And we see that God, more often than not, uses ordinary means and sinful men to accomplish his will. Although we see that principle put forth in the Joseph narrative, it is nowhere in Scripture seen more clearly than in the life and death of the Lord Jesus Christ. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And how did he redeem those who are under the law? By becoming a curse. For us, through the hands and actions of sinful, wicked, godless men or or apostates from God's own people, the religious leaders and the Gentile rulers and soldiers to accomplish God's plan of redemption. So all of this, all of this narrative, all of this historic narrative is setting us up for that. Showing us how God operates, how his covenant promises will stand and he will keep them. And not your sins and not my sins and not the sins of all of these patriarchs and Old Testament saints can stop God's plans. Because God has, from eternity past, purpose to save his people. And because Jesus of Nazareth was the one sent to accomplish our redemption, we must, in humble faith, repent of our sins and believe in the Holy One of God, Jesus Christ. God himself has promised 
and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Ezekiel 36, 26. Dear one, cry out to God for mercy today. Humbly beg him to perform this promised miracle in your heart. Repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the commanded responses to the gospel of Christ. Repent and believe the gospel. Take heart, dear Christians. Just as God sovereignly controlled the affairs of mankind, and especially those of his chosen people in the Old Testament, so too now. God is still in control, still on his throne, still saving his people. He has blessed us with his merciful and gracious salvation and has given us the gift of his Holy Spirit. I, along with the Apostle Paul, exhort you, each one of you, and encourage you and charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. 1 Thessalonians 2.12. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for giving us these narratives of history, the history of your people, but more importantly, your story how you are down through history, redeeming your people, pointing us to Christ. How you have used sinful man and that we are so thankful that our sins, our wicked schemes, our plots cannot thwart your plan, your great and glorious plan of redemption, the covenant of redemption. And because you are faithful, God, we are saved. Because you are faithful, we are not destroyed. Because of your faithfulness, we are forgiven. So we thank you, Christ, for your obedience. We thank you, dear Lord, for your active obedience on our part, obeying the law where we cannot, where we do not. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for your submissiveness to the cross that you paid the price that that we owe and that there is salvation in your name and no other. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for making this a reality in our hearts, for redeeming, for uh, regenerating us, for giving us this promised new heart of flesh. And now we pray, oh God, that you would strengthen us And enable us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. That we could see the sins that are recorded in the Old Testament. And as we are told in the New Testament, learn from them so as not to make those mistakes. Where we do fail you, Father, we beg for forgiveness in Christ. We pray that you would give us the the words and the motivation and the desire to share this glorious gospel with all we meet. Because you are a covenant-keeping God and you have a people that you have promised to save. And the gospel is the means that you use. Make us faithful in this, Father. Make us the Christians that you've called us to be. 
and do this for your glory and for the sake of your church. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.